Amen. Um, that was fun. I was into that. That was, that was gosh, that was such a good day. Um, so we're taking a break from our, our walk through the book of Philippians this morning. Uh, it's really focusing on, the, on what happened at the beginning of, of Holy Week on Palm Sunday. So we began uh, our time this morning by celebrating with three people who have come to the point that they believe that Jesus is who he said he was and did what he said he was going to do. All right, they've come to the point that they've said, all right, I, 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 I'm trusting not just my life, I'm not just trusting like, for the sake of doing this, I'm trusting my eternity that Jesus is who he said he is, and he's, he did what he said he was going to do. So for, for us, right, we come to Easter, we come to like, the, 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 just the crucifixion, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Everything that we believe as Christians hangs on the facts and like, the events of what we're going to be talking about over this Sunday and then next Sunday as we celebrate Easter together. Because there has to be a reality to the cross. It can't just be a story. It can't just be something that you're familiar with or you've heard about or maybe if, you've, if you grew up in church that you've heard your whole life. You like colored pictures of it when you were four and stuff. Like it can't just be that. Because if the cross is just a story for us, you don't trust your eternity to a story. You trust your, you, you trust your eternity to a person, a real live flesh and blood person. Descended from heaven to come and do what only he could do for us. And so as I, I prayed through what I wanted us to get to do this morning and the next week together in, in, on Easter, I, I, just, I just wanted us to, to have this the crystal clear picture of, of what Jesus did. And as we're coming into the beginning of the week, we have to start with this crystal clear picture of, of what exactly Jesus was choosing to do. Because I don't know about for you, but for a long time, um, it kind of sounded like that Jesus ultimately just got caught. Like he was doing some stuff and some people got mad and this accident happened and he was wrongly accused and before you know it, God's surprised or something and then Jesus is on a cross. And that is not, that's not the story. There was a choice that was made for us, like on our behalf, like for our good and for God's glory. And I just want us to be crystal clear on that. So this week, as we look ahead, I want to give you this, this mental picture of what transpired. I want you to get to see it with new eyes. So as best you can, if you've been around church for a long time, I want you to get to see this story and see this, what happened this, this, across this week and even next week. I want you to get to see it with new eyes so it can have just as, as much relevance to you as it possibly can. If you're not a Christian in the room, like if you're, if, if you're here and you're saying, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to be here, I'm glad you guys believe this stuff, but you're just not sure, you're not, you're not bought in yet, that's fine. Like This is the perfect day for you to be here. Because I want to just walk through just simply what Jesus did as he began to, to prepare himself to do what only he could do on Friday. All right, so if you got your Bible, we're going to be in the book of John this morning, and we're going to begin our walk to the cross together. So the beginning of the end, which was just the beginning of the, anyway, the whole thing, like the beginning of the, like the, beginning of the, the week, the beginning of this, this trajectory, this story, actually, it starts way back when Jesus um, actually raised his friend Lazarus from the dead. Jesus was away, and he heard that Lazarus had died, and so he got the news of that, that he was dying, knew that Lazarus was going to die, waited a few days, and then finally made his way to Bethany, to Lazarus' house, where Mary and Martha lived as well. They were friends. And he gets there, and Lazarus has been dead for four days, and Jesus like, has this whole moment where he's weeping in front of this tomb over the broken, like the sadness and the, the awfulness of death, but then in this loud voice like cries out to a tomb, Lazarus, come out. And a, and a guy like comes like hobbling out of a tomb wrapped in burial cloths. Like Jesus has to tell somebody to go unwrap the guy. Okay, like this is this happened. And there's all these people who have heard this story. And like if you, if the if the 
If the news of Jesus and his miracles had been spreading before that, once that happened, it was, it was just full on. Like there was, there was no keeping it a secret anymore. Everybody was hearing about this Jesus and what he had done because Lazarus had been dead for days. And with one sentence, he raises this guy, comes walking out. So that sounds like that'd be a good thing, that news of Jesus was spreading, but it wasn't. Pretty quickly, it started to cause some problems. So in John chapter 11, verse 45, it says this, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and seen what he did when he raised Lazarus, they believed in him. So many of these Jews were believing in him, right? Trusting him. But some of them, they went to the Pharisees and they told them that Jesus, what Jesus has done. And so the chief priests and the Pharisees, they gathered the council together and they said, what are we to do? What are we going to do? Like, what are we going to do with him? He says, what are we going to do? But this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. Praise God. Let's go. All right. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and they'll take away both our place and our nation. So scores of people are coming to believe on Jesus. Scores of people are, are, are trusting Christ, but a powerful few see him as a threat and they make a plot to have him eliminated. Jesus knows this. And so what Jesus does, he, he kind of he backs out, he kind of leaves for a little while. He goes to a little town nearby called Ephraim. And there in Ephraim, he kind of just waits for Passover. He just kind of just waits for Passover to come. Now Passover in, in uh, the history of Israel was the celebration of God rescuing Israel from slavery. It was the way they celebrated every year. They celebrated Passover. It was a celebration when God took Israel and rescued them from slavery in Egypt and brought the 10th plague, but he passed over the nation of Israel, the firstborn, like in, in, his, in his grace and his goodness. And so they celebrate Passover every year. And so in Jerusalem, where all this is going to transpire, where Jesus' ultimate um, victory over sin and death is going to happen, in Jerusalem, people would come from all around to be there to celebrate Passover together. And so the city of Jerusalem would swell to like four to five times the size that it normally was. There would be almost two million people packed in this little town of Jerusalem. It's not a lot, there's not a lot of square miles in there. I mean, there's no social distancing happening at all, okay? They're just smashed in there together. There's two million people. Like, you can barely walk through the town. And Passover is coming. Passover's getting close. So in verse 55, it says this, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. And so many went up from the country to Jerusalem before Passover to purify themselves. They'd go to the temple and do all this. And so they, they were looking, it says while they were there, they were looking for Jesus, saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? What do you think? Like, what, like, do you think he's going to come? Do you think he's going to come to the feast at all? Like, do you think he's going to make it? What do you think is going to happen? Do you think he's just going to show up? Because these Pharisees, they seem real mad, okay? Like, do you think he's going to show and so everybody's there, and they're whispering about this together, about whether Jesus is actually going to show up or not. Now, it keeps going. It says, now the chief priests and the Pharisees, they'd given some orders that if anyone knew where he was, they should, he should let them know that they might arrest him. So there's people, everyone, wondering if, if he's going to come. But the Pharisees and the chief, chief priests and all these people, they have spies out watching for Jesus. Again, Jesus knows this. So instead of heading immediately into Jerusalem, Jesus goes back to Bethany. Bethany's Lazarus's town. As he heads back to see his friend one more time where Mary and Martha are going to be there. And by Saturday, he shows up in Bethany. Bethany's not far from Jerusalem. It's on the other side of the Mount of Olives. Like he shows up there and, and he's at Lazarus's house by Saturday. And so they're sitting around together and it's six days before Passover would start. 
Six days until Jesus would be in a grave. He's at Lazarus' house, seeing his friend again. It's on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives, like the Mount of Olives is kind of in between. Jerusalem's over here, there's the Mount of Olives, and Bethany's kind of on this side. He's not really far from town, but he's just kind of trying to spend some time with his, with his friends, with his people, with his disciples. Disciples are there, and they're just enjoying some time together. Mary and Martha are there. They're enjoying this kind of this moment of peace, and they don't, but nobody else knows it's coming except Jesus. So they're sitting together on Saturday, and then uh, Lazarus' sister Mary, she does this, this audacious, like, beautiful act of worship. She, she takes um, a pound, a full pound of expensive perfume, and she anoints the feet of Jesus with it. And in, in, like, in, in, in such an intimate act of worship that it honestly just makes me feel uncomfortable, she wipes the feet of Jesus with her hair. Judas is there, and he's furious about it, acting like they should have saved the money or you know, whatever to give to the poor because he was stealing from them and stuff. But Jesus, Jesus stops him, and in verse uh, 7 of chapter 12, he says this. He says, leave her alone. He says, back off, leave her alone, so that, you may, that she may keep it for the day of my burial. He said, we don't want to sell the rest of it. Whatever is left over, he's like, we're just, we're, she needs to save that for the day of my burial. He says, for the poor you always have with you, but you don't always have me. He knows what's coming. You feel that? It's six days out. Six days from now, he's going to be in a grave. He's just on the other side of the hill from Jerusalem. He knows what's transpiring over there. He knows what's coming. He's, trying to, he's, he's helping Mary prepare for his burial. Like he's, he knows. That's the thing that stands out to me in this entire story, that he knew what was going to happen if he went into Jerusalem. He chose the cross. As we keep walking through this story, you're going to see over and over again that Jesus like actively, intentionally chose to die for us. He didn't get caught. This wasn't some accident. Like He chose this out of love for his enemies, enemies like me, people who lived in complete opposition to him, going, his own, like going my own way, going your own way. We lived as enemies of the cross. And out of love for his enemies like me and you, Jesus is going to choose the cross. So the crowds that they're in Jerusalem, they hear that he's over the hill in Bethany. They get word of that, they hear he's in Bethany, and they come running up the hill to see him and to see Lazarus, okay? Because Lazarus is also a big deal because he was dead for four days. I've never met anybody that's been dead for four days that came back to life. Maybe you have, I doubt it. Um, and so they're like, I, I got to go see these two crazy people, okay? And so they're coming across the hill just to see the spectacle. And Jesus does what he does. He spends time with people. He's loving on people six days out from being in a grave. But the next morning, Sunday morning, Palm Sunday morning, Jesus wakes up, and he knows that it's, it's time. The time has come. As you read through the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there's this, this, this gravity, this draw, like all the way through each one of those accounts of this all building to this moment when Jesus would enter into Jerusalem to do what he came to earth to do. It's the pinnacle of all history. Like this is how he wakes up on Sunday morning and he knows it's time. And I think with a heavy heart, I know with a heavy heart, he sets his eyes towards Jerusalem where five days later he would be crucified. Five days later he's gonna be crucified and he looks to Jerusalem and he's ready. He said, it's time to go. He sends his disciples ahead. 
He sends a couple of disciples on ahead over into Jerusalem, and he says this in Luke 19, 28. He says, when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethage and Bethany at the Mount, of, Mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples ahead, saying, go into the village in front of you. Where on entering, you're going to find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. And this is fulfilling the prophecy in Zechariah 9.9 where it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Listen, when, when, when conquering kings would ride into a city, they would ride in on a war horse. These like big, you know, like armored, you know, stallion horse things. When they wanted to come as a show of peace, they came in riding on a donkey. And Jesus sends a couple of disciples ahead to go find a donkey and bring it to him. And Jesus, they, they, they bring the colt. Jesus climbs up on this thing. And they set out down this hill into Jerusalem. The crowd that had run and come to, to come to see him the night before, they've run back to Jerusalem now. They've run ahead again. And they're telling everybody in Jerusalem, all those people who are whispering in the temple, what, is he going to come? Is he going to show? Maybe he's not going to show. And all the, the chief priests, the Pharisees, and all their spies, they're like, he's coming, he's coming. Like he's just running through the town, screaming, he's coming. And everybody's like turning. And they run to the, to the, to the road leading into Jerusalem, and they line the streets. John 12, 12 says this, says the next day this large crowd that had come to the feast, they heard Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. They're hailing him as king. They think he's coming into the city to overthrow Roman rule. They think they're going to get to be a part of a coup. Hosanna, when they're chanting that, it means save now, but they're not talking about anything else other than saving them from their Roman oppressors. That's what they're thinking Jesus is going to save them from. That is not what he's there to do. He's there to save them from something far greater. And not just them, us. Hosanna is the appropriate thing to, to yell while seeing Jesus coming. When, when Jesus is coming into your life, as Jesus is drawing you, that's the appropriate thing to yell. Hosanna means save now. But it's not from some external thing. It's from, it's from ourselves. It's from our sin, from our brokenness. Our sin nature, this heart that's turned away from him and all of our mistake and all of our shame and all of our whatever, like, it's in us. So Jesus is coming to set people free, true. He's coming to save the world, but it's not to save them just from Roman rule, something far greater than that. This is borderline a riot. This is like a riot of a celebration breaking out in Jerusalem. People are going absolutely nuts, but not everyone was celebrating. Remember, Jesus, he knew. He knew riding into town that day on that donkey, he knew that just in a few days' time, those chants of Hosanna were going to turn into chants of crucify him. The Gospel of whatever, I don't even know what I just said. The Gospel of Luke actually talks about him riding into Jerusalem, weeping over its brokenness. Where everybody's just like waving the palm branches, everybody's going nuts and thinking he's going to overthrow everything, and Jesus comes in, tears streaking down his face, thinking about what's coming. He's just settled in for the night. The crowds are starting to break up. And then this really weird interaction takes place. It's only really recorded or talked about in the Gospel of John, but I love it because it gives us a picture into Jesus' mind. 
Sometimes it's, it's difficult or it's, it's hard for us to remember that Jesus was a person just like us. He was fully God, but he was also fully man. He had thoughts and fears and anxieties just like us, but he lived this perfect life despite all of that. All of the stuff you carry around, he's carrying around too. And so this gives us this picture into his mindset that evening as all well, the crowds are breaking up and he's, he's just getting to kind of settle in there in Jerusalem. This is what happened. In John chapter 12, verse 20, it says, Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. That means they're like not Jewish people, all right? They're Gentiles. And so these, these Greeks, they, they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and they asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Which is a beautiful thing to say. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. So Philip doesn't know what to do. So Philip goes and finds Andrew and talks to him about it. And then Andrew and Philip, it says, they went together, like holding hands or something. They went and had to go tell Jesus together. They're really not sure what to do in this. Like, I don't know. He hasn't been hanging out with a lot of people. I mean, it seems, there's, you can almost feel like a, a resistance to even tell him there's somebody there to see him. So eventually, Philip and Andrew, they kind of make their way over to Jesus and they, they tell him there's some, some Greeks that are there to see him. This isn't in your Bible, but I just imagine Jesus sitting alone as, as Andrew and Philip are walking up. That's just how I like to imagine. I, just, I, like, I like to sit on my patio at night and just kind of watch a fire. That's good thinking time for me. I don't know if, you have, if you're in college, you don't have a patio. If you, you should get a patio and get a fire, like a little you know, fire thing. It's legit. It's good for your soul. And so I just imagine Jesus doing that. Cause I don't know if he did or not. But so just sitting there, like gazing into it, like thinking about what is coming. Can feel like the weight on his shoulders. And then Philip and Andrew walk in and you know, tell him about the request. There's somebody else who wants to see you. But it's interesting about this is Jesus doesn't answer. Like he doesn't respond at all to the visitors. He starts talking, has, but what he says has nothing to do with what Philip and Andrew just said. Isn't that a weird thing to record in the Bible? Philip and Andrew come and say, hey, there's some people here to see you, and Jesus completely ignores it, but does start talking about something completely unrelated. He doesn't respond to the visitors. He responds to the situation. Verse 23, it says, Jesus answered them. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. You see what he's thinking about? His hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Philip and Andrew just walked in and were like, hey, there's some people here to see you. And he, Jesus starts talking about wheat. He starts talking about how seeds work. All right, it has nothing to do with what they just said, right? It kind of gives you this picture into where he was, where, what's going on in his mind and what's on his heart, the way that he feels. He's in the hours come for the Son of Man to be glorified. That means glorified for eternity, like taken away from this life and shown to be the true Son of God by his death and burial and resurrection. He's saying the hours come. Somehow wheat, how like a grain of wheat doesn't have any effect unless it falls to the earth and dies. It has to stay there. It has to remain alone for a while. But when it dies, it then bears fruit. Jesus knows that in order for others to live, he was going to have to die. In, other, in order for sinful people like me to be forgiven, that he was going to have to pay my price, to pay for my sin. For you to get to have hope and peace and joy and forgiveness and salvation, like to get to walk in the love of God, he was going to have to go to the grave for us. But he also knows that like a seed, he wasn't going to stay buried forever. 
That it, his, this sacrifice, like his death, was going to produce fruit that was going to continue to pay dividends, that was going to continue to draw people out of darkness and out of their brokenness for generations and generations. Sitting there that Sunday night, he knew the next Sunday morning he was going to be raised from the dead. He's talking about it a week out. He chose this. This was the plan from the beginning. He knew it was coming. Sitting there that night, his mind is like fixed on laying down his life for the world, for, for, for us, for you. Like he's, his mind is fixed on laying down his life that night. He's not talking about visitors. This, this go time. Like I, it's time. The time has come. The hour is near like for the Son of Man to be glorified. It's time to go. Listen, we got to remind ourselves that the fact that he was the Son of God doesn't make any of this any easier. The fact that he was the Son of God doesn't make any of this any easier. The fact that he was... Fully human means like he's facing this unfathomably awful death, like he would have the same reaction to that as I would and that you would. But worse than the physical death, worse than the physical death was the weight of the sin of the world that was going to be placed on him. Like he was going to bear our weight, bear our sin, bear our shame. It's that he's thinking about. It's not just the physical death, that's enough. But taking all of my weight, being the scapegoat for me, like in you, like just us, man, like I, I can't bear the weight for us. He's going to stand in our place, like just the, the awfulness of that. He, it, like scripture literally says that, that he was made to become sin. Like he who knew no sin was made to become sin, that we might taste righteousness. This holy and perfect son of God was going to like literally become sin in the eyes of the father so that we didn't have to be separated from him anymore. He's thinking ahead to that weight. This was a different kind of Jesus that Philip and Andrew were used to. Uh, the tone's different. The weight's different. There's an agony there that's, that's different. And they were probably a little freaked out by that. I mean, you walk up to Jesus and say, hey, there's some people here to see you, and Jesus starts talking about, you know, grains of wheat dying and, like, producing fruit. Like, that's a little strange, okay? And so they're probably, you know, at least paying attention but then Jesus goes on. In verse 12, or chapter 12, 25 and 26, the next verse he says this. He says, whoever loves his life loses it. I think he's talking about us, and I think he's talking about himself. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. He says, if anybody serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anybody serves me, the Father is going to honor him. He turns his attention to us. He's thinking about the cross. He's thinking about the weight. He's thinking about the, the, the awfulness of what he's going to have to go through. But then he's also thinking about us and the way that we're going to have to come and decide what to do with it, which is really the whole point, right? Because it actually comes down to, like, if Jesus has done this thing, then you have to come to a point where you decide what you're going to do do with his sacrifice, what you're going to do with his resurrection. Turns his attention to us. Listen, there's nothing in Jesus right now that you can feel like he's trying to preserve his own life. He knew there was something much greater to live for, and in the same way, he gives you this challenge, right? He's saying that we all have to make a choice of what we are going to live for. He basically lays it out like this. Are you going to live for your, like, this life only? Or are you going to live this life for something far greater than just this? 
are, are, are you? Like, are, are we? Like, we have, to come, we have to come to a point where we decide we're going to do this. Are you going to live for this, this life only? A life that, like, repeatedly disappoints all of us. Where all of our expectations, no matter how great or how small, are ultimately going to fall short. Where everything that we build towards can get swept away in a moment. You live for that life only? Are you going to live for just this life only with all of its hurt and all of its pain and all of its struggle, all of its purposelessness, like all of its emptiness? Is this the life that we're like going to, we're going to focus on this one? Is this the best we got? Are we going to be people who live for this life only where we like chase after a joy that never actually stays with us? Where for a moment here and there you can have like a glimpse of true joy, a like lasting joy, then it's gone? This life only, really? Lives where we're trying to like cling to some semblance of security and knowing that in a second it can all be gone. Like, I, where we, we work and we toil and we struggle to figure out who we are and what we're going to do with our lives and what our purpose, what our reason is for doing all this. Like, why are we, what are we doing? And like, it's a life of struggle and toil for honestly, like, not much of an end. And Jesus is looking at the way that we live our lives for what is temporary, what is fleeting, what will not satisfy. And he's like, ooh, whoever loves his life here is ultimately going to lose it. He's like, but if, if those who will give up all of that and find a new life in me, they're going to find life. So there are options there to live for this life only, or we get to live with eternity on our hearts. That's the difference in Christians, that we live with eternity on our hearts. We've, we've encountered something eternal, someone eternal who has done something eternal for us. And so we come to the point of saying, this, is, this can't be what I'm going to live for. I'm going to live for him and for his glory and for his renown, recognizing that there's eternity to follow in this. So that gives this life purpose, that gives my eternity hope. Like, I'm going to live for that instead. That sounds like a much better plan to me. Jesus sets before us two options, two lives to live just in those couple of verses. He knew what his life was going to be laid down for, and then he decides, he, asks, he, he, he calls on me and you to choose what we're going to lay our lives down for, for fleeting hope, for fleeting joy, for a complete lack of security, or for hope and peace and joy, mercy, love found in him. Those are our options. He rode into Jerusalem that morning knowing that he was going to give up his earthly life so that we could have eternal life. Knowing the choice that he was going to make in just a few days' time. And then he begins to call people. And the way that he's speaking and the way that it's recorded, like he's, he's calling people to choose. He says, whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life, that's harsh, man. Whoever hates his life in this world will get to keep life, like keep his life for eternal life. That means if you turn away and like forsake that old life and all the junk that you were living for and you go after him instead, following him with your life, you'll get to keep it for eternal life. So if anybody serves me as opposed to serving yourself, that's the other option, right? If anybody serves me, he's got to follow me. It's not just enough to say that you're a Christian. Like I, I'm, 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 I come to church sometimes, like try to, you know, whatever. Like I, no, like it's not just enough to be a Christian in name only. It says whoever serves me, like must follow me. Are you following him? Are you following you? Are you following what somebody else told you to do? 
Who are you following? Like he says, if, if, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. When Ezra was sitting in bed and we're reading through the, the resurrection, like the crucifixion resurrection account, him, he's looking at me and he's like, listen, I've already done this. I'm talking to him about what is going to happen when he becomes a Christian. He's six years old, which freaks me out a little bit. And like I've been holding the brakes on him for a long time because I'm like, honestly, Ezra, I don't know if you're old enough to follow Jesus with your whole life. I don't know if you're old enough to make the choice to do that. And so we've talked about this for years. And like, I don't know if you're old enough to, to decide how you're going to live the rest of your life, who you're going to follow. We're sitting there that night reading the story, and then like, we get to the point where I'm saying, Ezra, so when you become a Christian, this is what's going to happen. Like, God, Christ take, took your son on himself, and like, he's going to forgive you, the whole thing. And he's like, yeah, I've done that. What? You know? This is obstinance in him that was different. And I'm like, no, buddy, we talked about this. All right, like, chill, you know, whatever. And he's like, no, you told me that being a Christian meant that I believed in Jesus and that I was going to follow him, that I was going to choose to follow him. And I've done that. I was like, all right, I don't know what else you say, right? I've done that. I've made my choice. Have you made your choice? If you're a Christian in the room, like, who are you following right now? Like, what, what pattern of life, like, whose trajectory are you following? Is it yours or his? Where are you trying to find your, your like, source of hope and joy and pleasure? Like, what do you worship? Who you serves me is going to follow me. Like, if you're not a Christian in the room, like, it's kind of obvious here, like, Listen, you got, you got a choice to make between like hanging on to this, this life that you have and all of its struggle and all of its disappointment or setting it down and choosing to trust and follow Christ. I know that is a huge leap of faith. But it's the choice that this passage, the whole Bible is setting before us. So Jesus is sitting there talking to Philip and Andrew. He's reflecting on what he was going to choose to do to offer the world the gift of salvation, the gift of forgiveness. And his thoughts turned to people like you and called you and me to decide what we're going to do with the gift of his sacrifice, with the gift of Easter. When he's like laying his life down for us, like what are we going to do with that gift? We have to decide, you have to decide whether you're going to take the gift of the cross, take it, like make it your own, or not whether you're going to give up that old life that you, that you get to be in charge of with all of its turmoil, or if you're going to give it up to follow him. That's your choice. It's your choice whether you're going to get to experience the abundant life that he made possible, that he died to make possible for you, or if you're going to give it up. Simply whether you're going to follow him or not. Jesus went to the cross intentionally, made his choice, like, like the next verse, like we're going to talk about in tribes this week, talks about how he's saying, what am I going to do? Am I going to say, like, let this cup pass from me? No, for this purpose I've come. Like, he knew what he was doing. He'd made his choice. Have you made yours? Christians, listen, uh, you've, at some point, like, if you're a Christian, you're like, actually a Christian, you've made your choice. You've come to the point where you've done the same thing. Like you've said, I'm going to follow after Christ. I believe in him. I'm going to follow him with my life. Like that's, that's your choice. That's what you've decided to do. So this morning, I've got two questions for the, those of you in the room who are followers of Jesus. And the first one is this. Like the death and resurrection of Christ, it can't just be a story for us. The insanity and fairness of what Jesus did for me, like it still needs to astound me what he did. Like it still has to astound us so I just want to ask you Christians in the room, like this week, as we're moving toward Easter, not that we like, celebrate 
should, should only celebrate the resurrection on Easter or something, but there's a set-aside time for that. Like, there's seasons for this. And so what are you going to do this week, Christian? Like, what are you going to do this week to worship well? The God who laid his life down for you, who brought you to himself. Like, what are you going to do this week to worship well? Like, are you, like practically, like, are you, are you, is it, you do have a plan for, like, spending time with him? Like, are you reading through scripture? Are you spending time in prayer? Like, are you worshiping with other believers? Like, what are you going to do this week to, like, actually worship well the one who did this for you? All right, fair question, practical question. Should you write something down? So number two, if you're a Christian, what would you, would, I just want you to, like, take, like, a, a, you know, we talked about taking a, a new eyes, a, a, a fresh perspective on the story of what happened. I also want you to take just a fresh perspective for a second on your life. Just kind of evaluate, just like look at your life with new eyes. And so just in the day-to-day of your life, are you following Christ or are you following something else? Just kind of like hold your life in the scales there. Like on the whole, like are, do you see evidence of the, like on the day-to-day, are you following after Christ or are you following something else? And for a lot of us, there's going to be some areas where we're following after some other things. Maybe unintentionally, maybe intentionally, maybe we're falling, falling into sin and stuff. Maybe it's just, like, I don't know, I'm trying to do my best, and, you know, somebody told me to do this kind of stuff. I'm just trying, but you're not actually following Jesus, you're following somebody else's pattern. So maybe there's some stuff to repent of. Maybe there's some things that you need to like, make some changes about and say, nah, instead of following the world, instead of following that stuff, I need to figure out how I'm going to follow Christ with this. Maybe for you... It's just a point of thankfulness, and you're looking at your life with new eyes and just seeing all of the stuff that Christ saved you out of, and you've got to come to a point of saying, like, I just, I just need to spend a few minutes with, with, with Jesus just thanking him for what he did for a wretch like me. And so, Christians, that's all I've got for you. Like, practically, what are you going to do this week to worship the Son of God well? And how is your life lining up with him? So Christians right now, like maybe you just need to write some things down, make some plans, jot some stuff or whatever. Maybe you just need to spend a moment just repenting of some sin. Maybe you need to spend a moment just thanking Christ for what he's done for you. So Christians, feel free to zone out, okay? And you do some work. But if you're not a Christian in the room, I just want to get to spend a minute with you. This is, this is what we believe. This is what all our entire faith hangs on, that Jesus intentionally laid his life down for us, for you. That Christ died on the cross and rose from the dead three days later, defeating even death for us. Listen, trusting and following Christ, it costs something. It costs your old life. And you may love your life, like you may love your life apart from Christ, but there is an emptiness, there's a darkness, there's a, there's a, a lack of identity, like there's this, there's There's so much underneath that. And laying down that life to choose and follow Christ may seem like a a price too high for you to pay, but I also just want to suggest this. I also want you to recognize the cost of not giving up that life. I want you to recognize what you are giving up by clinging to your old life, your own way. Christ died on a cross um, willingly to rescue you from sin, to rescue you from distance from the God that loves you perfectly, that knows your name, that knows how many hairs are on your head, like he knows you, like he died on the cross to rescue you from the distance like, that you would cause between your heavenly father and yourself. 
Died so that he could give you, literally, it's like it says, that you may have life and life abundantly. It's about choosing to cling to our old life. Like, we're giving up everything that Jesus died to make possible for you. And I just want you to weigh those costs. I just want you to hold those out kind of in your mind, like in the scale of the balance of your hands there, like which one of these two is worth clinging to? A life that, you know, maybe, I don't, I don't know, like, uh, I, don't, I don't know your life, I don't know your story, but like for me, like it was a life of a lot of anger and a lot of turmoil and a lot of frustration and, a, and not very much hope whatsoever. That was what I could cling to. Or I could give that up and I could lay it down and I could be rescued from my sin and know the God who loves me perfectly. Which price are you going to pay? Our band's going to come and they're going to lead us in one more song, a time of response. And we're just going to worship well together. Christians in the room, like maybe you got to jot some things down, maybe you got a second to pray, and you can continue to do that. But we also get to worship together as a church, having been reminded that Christ chose to do this. He did not get caught. This is not an accident. He willingly and intentionally laid his life down for us so that we could have life. And those of us in the room who have life because of what Christ did, we're going to get to stand and we're going to get to worship together because of that. If you're not a Christian in the room, the last thing I'll say to you is this. I, I, I spend, after service is over, I just come and hang out down here. And so I don't care if you're a Christian or not. Like, I'm just, I'm staying down here now so I can kind of be more accessible to you. I just, I'm here to, to chat if you want to. So if you come up and you want to talk to me about something, I'm going to give you my focus. And if you want to talk about what it means to trust and follow Christ, I would love to have that conversation with you. If you just have a question about something, like if you're like, I don't know, you just want to go grab coffee. We can talk about that too. It doesn't matter. But like, whatever you come up here, I'm going to talk to you about that. But if you're not a Christian and somebody invited you here, chances are they are. They've been found in Christ, like they've trusted their life to him. And honestly, it may do you more good to turn and ask the person who brought you and say, so tell me about this Jesus thing, like what, why did you actually choose to do this? What does that mean for you? What, what, what are you gaining by giving up that old life? Maybe you need to ask the person that you came with and have a conversation. Maybe you guys need to go to mugshots and have a conversation about Jesus over a burger. I can't think of anything more holy than that, all right? Like that seems like exactly what you should do actually. Um, but I'm gonna pray. Maybe down here in the front afterwards, but I just want this to be a time and a place for your worship. You've seen lived out this morning, three people saying, I've trusted and believed in Christ, and I want everybody to know it. Maybe you need to check that box in your card and say, I want to be baptized too. Like, I want everybody to get to know where I stand with Jesus. Maybe you need to find somebody right next to you and say, like, I listen, like, I don't want to wait till mugshots. I want to go talk about Jesus right now. Maybe you're a Christian, like, I just need to worship him. Like, I just need to honestly, like, just pray these words we're going to sing to him, like, and thank him for this way he's done. I don't know what you need to do, but it's your time to respond. Let me pray for you. Father, I, the audacity of the cross is not lost on us. The unfairness of the cross is not lost on us. Where Christ did what he did not deserve for those of us who did it. Like, he prayed, he paid my price. Before I could even ask him, God, thank you. Lord, my, my prayer is that thankfulness is on our lips all week long. God, I pray that those in the room who are Christians already who have you know, made their stand with Christ, but there's some areas where 
they're following some other stuff. God, I pray that you would give them the boldness to make change. God, for the Christians in the room who their faith has kind of grown a little cold, the stories, the story doesn't carry the same weight that it did. God, I pray that by your spirit that you would reignite those people's heart, fan into flame, the embers of their soul. God, I pray for every person in this room who hasn't yet trusted you as Savior. That as they weigh out that choice, whether to, to cling to their old life or to cling to you, God, I pray that by your Spirit you would draw them to yourself, that they would trust you. They'd put their hope in you, not themselves. God, save them. Lord, as a church, I pray for Oaks. I pray that we would be a church fixed on the gospel. with a heart for those who don't yet know you. Thankful this morning. So here's something I pray. Amen. Why don't you stand with us?